Welcome to The New Intellectuals. My name is Jordan Camp. I'm Director of Research at the People's Forum, a movement incubator in educational and cultural space in New York City. This podcast is made possible through a collaboration between the People's Forum and Pluto Press. In this episode, I speak with popular educator Stephanie Weatherby Brito about the right-wing turn in Latin America and its connection to U.S. and imperial interest in the region. Without further ado, Stephanie Weatherby Brito. I'm really delighted to be speaking with Stephanie Weatherby Brito. Uh, Stephanie is a member of the Popular Education Project. She's part of the International People's Assembly and was active in the labor movement in California. So thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Um, as I just said, you've been involved in labor and social movements in the U.S. and in Latin America, and you're currently working on an MA in mm-hmm. Brazil. And so I want to start by just inviting you to talk a little bit about your research. Mm-hmm. So I'm studying the way in which work is basically changing in today's economy and specifically studying service work and hotel workers. I was part of the hotel workers union when I was involved in the labor movement in California. And one of the things that I think became really clear to me is that most people today are working in either uh, restaurants, they're working in retail, they're working in a variety of different jobs that are in the service sector and that the labor movement has struggled to be able to cope with that change. Most service workers are not part of unions. They're not involved in any kind of process to organize and to fight for better rights. And I think that that partly has to do with the fact that we still haven't really understood how work in the service sector is different from industrial work, you know, decades ago. And so what I'm trying to study is just essentially what's different about this new kind of work in a way that can help us to become better organizers and that can help us to think about the labor movement in a way that also incorporates service workers. So during this time where you're working on this project in Mm -hmm. Brazil, you've been witness to a pretty massive transformation with the rise of Bolsonaro and intensification of political repression Mm -hmm. and also kind of consolidation of the right in the Americas. Talk about this experience and what you've witnessed in the last couple of years. Yeah, so I actually moved maybe about three months before Bolsonaro got elected. Um, And so I've been able to sort of see how that has sort of taken shape in Brazil. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that, uh, so clearly what we're seeing is the, the rise of an extreme right in Brazil which doesn't start the moment he gets elected, like it proceeds and there's been a movement of the ultra-right that has been forming. Uh, But I think that one of the things that's interesting is that there's some parallels between the rise of the ultra-right in Brazil with the rise of the right here in the United States. And there's a couple elements that I think are parallels, even though clearly there are different situations in many other ways. One of the ways is the way in which uh, racism has been functional to the project of the right in Brazil similarly to how it's been in the United States. And in Brazil, the way in which they've articulated this really racist discourse has been in some ways very overt, but also under the pretext of talking about law and order. A lot of what uh, has motivated the uh, people to vote for Bolsonaro and to sort of join the ranks of the right, either very actively or maybe less actively in terms of not being, you know, so hardcore, right, has been this idea that life in the country has become unbearable because of crime. And, you know, the subtext to that narrative about, like, 
what's making life in this country impossible is a very racist narrative. The idea that it's uh, that black people are fundamentally criminals and that there's a justification for the police to be basically executing black people. And so the project of the right is very linked to that kind of discourse. Um, and I was living in the United States when uh, the movement in Ferguson took place. And it's, you know, the issue of police brutality is also a huge issue in Brazil. I mean, just to put it into context, the state of Sao Paulo, where I live, killed more people in one year, the police, than the police of the entire United States in one year. And so, you know, there's like certain parallels there in terms of racism. The other thing is patriarchy plays a huge role in the rise of the right. And, and it's very linked to the growth and the growth of the political power of evangelical churches in Brazil, which have had a very strong reaction to everything from uh, the LGBT movement to the idea of women uh, leaving the home. And so a lot of the discourse that that uh, segment of the right is articulating has to do with the evangelical church. And I think that we see that parallel here in the United States too, that the, the church, the extreme right, also has some uh, clear ties to the church. Um, another thing is that the media has played a huge role in Brazil in redirecting uh, the narrative and making people think about the problems that are happening in the country and in their lives in terms of corruption. That, that was one of the things that brought Bolsonaro to power. The idea that the key problem in the country at the time was not issues uh, that had to do with the economy, not issues that had to do with social problems that have to do with injustices that have been around for a long time, but the corruption that the PT, that the Workers' Party had put into place. And the media was, had a key role in enacting that sort of discourse. And I think that we see that in the United States as well, where like the media plays a very functional role in explaining the way, like the problems that people have in their lives in a way that's gonna disempower them and make them, you know, and move them towards the right, which is what we saw in, in Brazil. And the other thing is that, I mean, I think that one thing that has to be said is that the rise of the right in Brazil is connected to an imperialist project, you know? There are natural resources in Brazil there's uh, petroleum that was discovered offshore, and there's also, you know, just like an immeasurable amount of mineral resources in the Amazon that a host of corporations from either the United States or Canada or Europe are interested in exploiting, and that they weren't going to be able to do it if they didn't have a government in place that was going to be able to basically clear their way to do that. And that's what the Bolsonaro government essentially has been willing to do. And so this whole project to take the PT out of power uh, was, yes, there, there was an interest in the ruling class in Brazil to do that, but there was also U.S. and imperial interests in doing that as well. And so I think that that's something that's really important to underscore. And, you know, for people that are concerned about what's happening in the Amazon and what's happening environmentally, I think that it's really important to know that this has to do with, you know, the exploitation of natural resources that you know, Brazil is being really prey to. Um, I think people know this, or if they don't, I think it's important to know that there's been two very serious mining disasters in Brazil over the past five years that have destroyed a host of towns that have contaminated rivers, that have killed lots of people. And it has to do with the exploitation of mineral resources without any kind of consideration for how that's going to affect people's lives. You talk about the events in Brazil representing an, an intensification of imperialism and 
you know, we look back to 2019 and of course in the region, a coup attempt yeah. by the Trump administration backed coup attempt in Venezuela, uh, a coup in Bolivia. And, you know, these events have led some analysts to suggest that we see an end of a progressive you know, protest wave or, yeah. you know, so-called decline of the pink tide. Is this correct in your assessment? I don't think so. And I think, uh, first of all, because I think that sometimes where that assessment comes from is also the idea that maybe those experiments were fundamentally flawed or maybe there was too many contradictions internally. Like there's a little bit of a subtext of like, oh, it didn't work, you know. And I think that, again, it's really important to underscore that although all of these processes had contradictions, had internal challenges, U.S. imperialism has played a fundamental role in taking them down, yeah? Like they haven't collapsed because of their own wrongdoings, which is not to say that there hasn't been, that there's valid critiques that could be made of any of these different projects, but that hasn't been the fundamental reason that the region has seen a rise of the right and that these projects of the left have been threatened. So I think one thing is that. Um, two is that the amount of like uh, infrastructure in terms of social movements and political consciousness that that period built over many years cannot be done away over the course of three or four years. Yeah. And that's what you see when you see the mobilizations that have been happening in Chile. I mean, the movements and the left in Argentina didn't take uh, Macri coming to power lying down. Like there was a big reaction to his government and to the different policies that he tried to implement. And Venezuela has also fought back this, uh, you know, this counterattack with a lot of social mobilization. So I think it's, A, I think that it's uh, very pessimistic to say that, but I think that it also like really misses who has been really behind these projects? Does that make sense? Like, it, it's not just the governments that were in power. Like, there is a lot of people in social movements that were responsible for bringing those uh, governments into power, those left governments. And they're not going to disappear overnight. They're not going to disappear in the course of a coup. I mean, you can see it really clearly right now. The reason that there's repression in Bolivia is because there's still, you know, there's a lot of people that are still supportive of Evo. There wouldn't be repression if there weren't people that were calling for Evo's return. I mean, so in many ways, you could say that this events also represent a crisis of U.S. imperialism in the region. So what are some of the particular challenges that political and social movements in Latin America face in this, in this moment, in this context of this crisis of legitimacy for imperialism? Well, I think one of them um, has to do with their ability to fight the narrative that the right has been propagating very successfully because the right controls the media. I think that that's one of the things that you can, that's like very, you know, automatic to point out. I mean, the media has been relentlessly attacking any uh, left project in the region over the, you know, recent period. And so I think that as long as the left doesn't develop their own uh, alternative media sources to be able to counteract that narrative, which is in many ways full of lies, I think that that's going to be a challenge. And of course, in the same ways in which fake news played a role in the U.S. election, it plays a role in all of the processes in Latin America, too. Like there are these huge uh, operations like social media operations that are entirely directed at disseminating fake news. So I think that that's one clear challenge that has to be gotten around. The other one is the escalation of repression. 
I mean, you look at places like uh, Colombia, where becoming, where being an organizer, where being active in social movements is, um, you know, is almost a death sentence. And so that's going to be that's that's a huge challenge. You know, you have a very hard time uh, consolidating a social movement when people are jailed and executed at the level that they are in a place like Colombia, for example. So I think that those are some of the challenges that movements are going to have to face. Um, and it's also kind of highlights the role of why solidarity from around the world is essential. Like the kinds of uh, human rights violations that the right is affecting against the people in a variety of places in Latin America can't become stories that don't get heard around the world. Because if that continues, then the situation is not going to get any better. It's going to get into a deeper crisis even. What message uh, do you have for people's movements in North America that are you know, seeking to be in solidarity with the people's movements in Latin America, in Brazil, in Venezuela, in Bolivia, um, Chile, and beyond? Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing is that the, the most valuable thing that can be done from the U.S. is to build strong social movements in the U.S. Um, and I think that the biggest thing that I have to say in that regards is that this is not the time to be pragmatic and to think about social change in terms of what's possible within the near future and what's winnable in the short term. I think that there's a strong tendency to think about social change in terms of like campaigns and what can we achieve within a short period of time. And I would insist that that is not the time for that. Like we need to be thinking about long-term projects that actually build the kind of political force that is necessary for us to push the agenda that we really believe in and not the agenda that we think is possible to win within the next two to five years. The level of crisis that the world is in is not the moment to try to cut deals that can get us to survive another day. That's not good enough anymore. We need to be thinking of projects that take a lot longer to build. And I think in that regards, I think that we need to be making a really serious commitment to those kinds of projects. We need to make a serious commitment to averting the kind of crisis that humanity literally faces right now. Like if you look at how serious the situation is around the world, in terms of environmental devastation, in terms of war, in terms of the masses of people that are being pushed out of work and have no hopes of making a livelihood. These are not things that are gonna be solved with a campaign that can be resolved within five years. You know, This is gonna require a much longer project for transforming society. And I think that that's the way that we need to be thinking everywhere in the world, but I think specifically in the United States, we have to be committing to long-term projects of social transformation. So I'd be remiss not to ask you to reflect on the importance of popular or political education in the process of this long-term social transformation that you were just describing. I think that the thing that we have to think about when we think about the importance of political education is the fact that the right is always doing political education. And what is political education essentially? It's uh, the way that people understand the world, the way that people understand their lives, the way that they understand the problems that they have in their day-to-day -day lives. And the right is endlessly providing people a certain narrative information and a way to understand the world that is favorable to a right-wing project, even though it doesn't seem that way because like, we've accepted some of those narratives so naturally it's everywhere. It's in advertising. It's in the news. It's in the material that we study in school. It's in television shows. Like there's a certain set of values 
and ideas about how the world works that are implicit in all of that. And they're almost never favorable to a vision for transforming society in a way, you know, where people would actually live better lives, yeah? And so if we're not doing political education, then the right is doing all the political education for us. So I think that that's what's key, is that we're not going to be able to transform the world until people are convinced that the world needs to be transformed. And that kind of social transformation that I'm talking about, that's going to avert the crisis that we're facing, is much deeper than, than, again, than something that can be won through a short campaign or something like that. It's going to require that we really understand why is it that so many people are being pushed out of work? Like, why is it that the streets uh, around the world in many big cities are being filled with homeless people? Like, why does homelessness exist? And again, the right has an answer to that, yeah? But that answer is not truth, you know? It's not, it's not the real reason why those things are happening. And so if we're not educating ourselves and if we're not educating people around what is the reason that the Amazon is on fire, um, what is the reason that, that there's a gap in pay between you know, men and women, you know, then the right is gonna have a, an answer for that. And so I think that sort of underscores why political education is so necessary right now, because if we're not doing it, then, then somebody else is doing it. If the left isn't doing it, if we're not educating people, then the values that people have are being informed by a right project. You know, some of the pushback that we hear about political education is that concepts like imperialism, concepts like capitalism, they're too difficult. You know, working people uh, don't understand or have time to do that kind of level of study. What, what would you say to that? I think that that's absolutely not true. And I think that that's a slightly elitist argument. I think that the idea that, that you need a sort of like a pricey education to understand these concepts is false because they're, they're processes that are real in people's lives, for one. And the other thing that I, I think that there's something really interesting to be said about this idea that like, oh, working people don't have time to study. The rise of the evangelical church has a lot to do with instituting processes of study among the people that are quite deep. You know what I'm saying? Like, I see this a lot in Brazil. You see people riding the subway during rush hour reading the Bible. And so I have a hard time believing, you know, sort of buying this argument that like, oh, working people don't have time or desire or the ability to read. Yes, they do. If we build a process that makes reading accessible to them and that makes it so that they understand it as something that is important in their life, then they will do it. On the flip side, you often hear the argument that people know automatically how structures work by virtue of their experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just kind of uh, intuitive or, or something like this. Is that uh, a correct assessment or? You know, you hear that a lot. And in, in my experience, you hear that a lot from people who themselves have done political education, like they've read a lot. And so I think that, again, one, I think that people do not intuitively know how the system works. I think that people intuitively know that the system is unjust. Yeah, I think that people intuitively know that the system doesn't work for them. But I think that uh, people have been denied the information, like uh, back to what I was saying, like the right is consistently, endlessly performing their own political education. And so when we say people intuitively just know these things, we're really undermining the project of the right to educate people, 
to make them think uh, and to give them a certain understanding of the world. Um, so I think that that's one. Like people are bombarded daily with a series of explanations about how the world works that are not truthful. But I do think, yes, people instinctively uh, have a sense that this is not the way things are supposed to be. But I think that, again, we shouldn't undermine the insidiousness of these projects of the right that seek to build people ideologically, instill a, set, a certain set of values, because they go really far in terms of uh, demobilizing people. I think that that's their essential goal. And so I think that when people say, well, yeah, people intuitively know uh, how things work, the logical follow-up to that would be that then they would spontaneously be taking action to confront that. And that's not the case. Right. Every moment in history where people have stood up to confront injustice, there's been an organizing process when it, it's been successful. You know, there's been a process through which people have gained consciousness and where if people have come together to figure out how to confront that injustice. It hasn't happened just sort of spontaneously out of people's instinctive knowledge of what's right and wrong. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The New Intellectuals. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us. You can find The New Intellectuals every month wherever you subscribe to your podcast. Plutobooks.com, TPF link forward slash TNI, and the People's Forum YouTube channel. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes with political theorists Jody Dean, scholar Christina Heatherton, historian Gerald Horn, and more. See you soon.